Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's take our Bibles now and open to the 8th chapter of the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8, and uh, we're studying verse by verse through all of the book of Romans. And when you get to chapter 8, we kind of breathe a sigh of relief, don't we? Uh, We've come up that mountainside as we saw last week and planted our flag at Romans 8 verse 1, which says, as Nan quoted, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, Many theologians and Bible teachers believe that Romans chapter 8 is the greatest chapter in all the Bible. And I'm aware there's a danger when you're a preacher and you announce you're going to preach from the greatest chapter in all the Bible. It's like a chef pronouncing that he's going to cook a meal from the greatest recipe in the world. It sets yourself up for failure, right? But I know you won't be disappointed because the word is so clear here in Romans chapter 8. I think it will nourish us. It will bless us if we understand it correctly. No condemnation, not now, not ever. We don't have to carry around a heavy weight of guilt in this life, and we don't have to fear on the day of our death or the day of judgment that God is going to cast us out. Christ has taken our condemnation at the cross, and we are connected to him by faith. We are sealed up safely in him through the Holy Spirit. Now, speaking of the Holy Spirit, we saw last week all three members of the Trinity operative here in God's work of justification by faith. God the Father, of course, sent his son into the world. The son willingly came and voluntarily laid down his life for the sins of all who would believe. And it is the work of the Holy Spirit, not only to convict us of sin and judgment and God's righteousness, but once we're saved, he then gives us the ability and the desire to obey God. And I think the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a Christian is summarized in one verse. You can jot this down in the margin of your Bible and look at it later. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. For it is God who is at work in you both to desire and to work his good pleasure. So God living within us through his spirit gives us the desire, the will, if you will, and the ability to please him. We concluded the message last Sunday by saying that before we were born again, we lacked both of those things. We had neither the desire nor the ability to please God. But now that we are born again, God's Spirit gives us both of those things, the will and the ability to obey. And that is what it's like to be a child of God, living in a state of desire to please Him. I think that's a good starting place for our text today, which is really God's contrasting the two categories of humans in the world. So let's read beginning of verse 5, chapter 8 of Romans. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. 
But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he was raised, who he raised, Christ Jesus from the dead, will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. But if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. I think we'll stop our reading right there. It might surprise you that I said earlier that there are only two categories of people from God's perspective in the world. Now, from the human perspective, we have all manner of ways of categorizing one another, uh, rich and poor, black and white, educated and illiterate, tall, short, the list goes on and on almost uh, indefinitely. But let's look back up to that summit verse for a second, Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Those are your two categories of people, those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ, those who share in that mystical union with his death, burial, and resurrection and those who are outside of a saving relationship. Um, a great picture of this, I mentioned this briefly in one of the services last week, is Noah's Ark. Remember, God warned the world that he was going to send a flood, a deluge, because of the sinfulness of man. And Noah began to work on that ark, and we believe it probably took him about 100 years. And I take it that all the while, that during that period of time, anyone who repented could have gotten on that ark. But no one did, save Noah and his family. And there came a day when God told Noah to take his family and get in the ark. And the scripture says, God sealed up that ark. And when the flood came, Noah was inside. He was in the ark. And everyone who was outside the ark suffered God's wrath. And in a great spiritual state, that's true for those who are in Christ. We are safe. We are preserved for the wrath that is surely to come. Uh, but we also have the indwelling presence of the Spirit in the here and now that leads us to all truth, that helps us to understand the Scripture and leads us to all, in right, all righteousness. So two kinds of people in the world. Now, the Bible uses a number of contrast and comparison words, but it's really the two same categories of people. For example, we talk about those who are lost and those who are saved. We talk about those who are spiritually blind and those have spiritual sight. We talk about the sheep. We talk about the goats, the righteous, the wicked, those in Christ, those who are in Adam, children of God. And Jesus said to the Pharisees, you are children of who? The devil. Now that kind of chafes us a little bit because it doesn't sound right. Because many of us grew up in faith traditions that taught a doctrine called the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. And the idea is that old Coca-Cola commercial, we buy the world a Coke, right? We sit around the campfire and sing together and we're all one in humanity. Problem is the Bible teaches just the opposite, that there are two families. Jesus looked the Pharisees right in the eye and they were sure that they were children of God. And he said, you are our children of your father, the devil. Now that seems very harsh. Now there is a sense in which God grants life to all humanity and he gives good gifts and there is times when it rains on the just, the unjust. He is fatherly to all, but he's truly, in the real sense, only the father to all of those who put their faith and trust. And so in our text today, we're going to contrast using these two categories of people, but looking at it from three perspectives, three questions you can ask yourself. And of course, the overall purpose of Romans chapter eight is assurance, 
How can I know that I'm truly born again? How can I know that I'm in the family of God? Well, three diagnostic questions. Are you in the flesh or are you in the spirit? Secondly, are you dead spiritually or are you alive in Christ? And third, are you a slave of your sin or are you a son or a daughter of God? And so first, let's look at verse 5. You're either in the flesh or you're in the spirit. Verse 5 says, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. Here's those two categories of people. Those according to the flesh are those according to the spirit. Now, what does it mean to be according to something? It seems like it's missing a verb there almost. And we could supply a verb there and it wouldn't change the meaning. Those who walk or live their lives as a pattern, their trajectory is according to the flesh or their pattern of life or their life's trajectory is according to the spirit. And those who are unregenerate, the lost, live their lives according to in the direction of the things of the flesh. But those who are born again, who have the indwelling Holy Spirit, live their lives according to or in the direction of the things of the Spirit. It really speaks of two mindsets. One is the mindset of a saved person. One is the mindset of an unsaved person. A saved person has their mind set on the things of the Spirit. An unsaved person has their mindset set on the things of, of the flesh. And I was looking for an illustration of this, and, and I found it in the Bible. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. You remember when Jesus uh, was uh, in his earthly body and Scripture says there came a point in which he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, we know why he was going to Jerusalem. He was going to Jerusalem to die. That's why he was born. That's why he came into the world to be that substitutionary sacrifice. But there was a moment in time where he said, now is the time, and he set his face towards Jerusalem, and he had a fixed determination and a disposition to carry out the will of the Father. And I think that's a good way to look at someone whose mind is set on the spirit. They have a fixed and a steadfast disposition and a dedication to obey the will of the Father. And those who are not born again, they have no such disposition or, or direction. And, and really, if we could summarize in one verse, I think, in one sentence, I think it would be this. The Holy Spirit, through his indwelling power, gives a believer the desire and the ability to go the way of God. This is the overall meaning. A heart's desire of a truly regenerate person is to please God. Well, you say, well, wait a second, Pastor. Uh, I don't always have that desire to please God, and I certainly don't always obey God. Well, none of us do. Let's go back one chapter to chapter 7 and look at verse 17. Paul speaking of himself. Now, Dan very humbly confessed in front of all of us his sin of going his own way sometimes. And uh, it might be a good exercise for us to start over in this corner of the room and have us all come up here and confess our, our besetting sin. Well, Paul confessed his besetting sin in chapter 7, which was what? You remember? Coveting. And so he comes now, verse 17, he says, So now, that is now that he's born again, no longer I am the one doing it, but the sin which dwells within me, for the good, he says in verse 19, I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. Does that sound familiar? I, I think that's just real life. That's where all of us live. We have a fixed disposition and a desire when we're born again. We want to do the will of God, 
but we still live in these flesh suits, and we still have to battle it every day, and sometimes we lose the fight, and we still sin. But that does not change the fact that our greatest desire, ultimately, and our ambition in life is to please God. Our face is set towards obedience. Sometimes we get distracted to the left or the right. But when we do, we confess that sin and we set our face once again towards obedience. We can all relate to that. But a person who's never been converted, they have no desire to please God and indeed no ability to please God. We see that beginning in verse 6. Verse 6 back in chapter 8 says, For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I don't think he could be any clearer. The reason lost people act like lost people is that they're lost people. We make a great mistake, and I've been guilty of it myself. You see someone on television or an interview, and they have such hostility towards the things of God, and so openly sinful, disregarding the things of God, and, and we are upset by that, and we're shocked by that, and how could anyone live like that? They live like that because they can't help but do anything else. They do not have the indwelling presence of the Spirit. They have no desire or even any ability to please God. And so you see this next contrast is, are you dead spiritually, or have you been made alive? So know what he says there about Death, verse 6, for the mindset in the flesh is death. He doesn't say it leads to death. What's he say? It is, is death, present tense, the walking dead. Yes, people are sitting up and taking nourishment, our neighbors and lost friends. They go to work every day. There's a heartbeat, but spiritually they are dead while they live. I've been saying this the last few weeks. I, I want to reiterate, the Bible speaks of three deaths that are the result of sin. Number one is physical death. There is physical death in the world today because of the sin of Adam and Eve. And all of us go to funerals, and we're reminded every time we do of the high cost of sin. But there's also spiritual death, which is separation from God. And we're all born spiritually dead. And we have no spiritual life until the Holy Spirit breathes life into us, and we're born again spiritually. But the worst kind of death awaits a lost person in the future on the day of judgment. It's called eternal death, where God finds their names not in the Lamb's book of life, and they're cast into hell eternity. But I think Paul's speaking of here spiritual death, that, that second kind of death. That's the condition that a lost person is born into the world with, the condition that all of us were in before we were saved. Paul describes it this way, even of his own condition, that before we were saved, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That's spiritual death. And, and I know many of you are uh, studying in your Sunday school classes in the book of Ezekiel, right? And I believe last Sunday you looked at the 37th chapter. And just listen to these words again and think of them in terms of your own spirit that was made alive through the Holy Spirit. Scripture says, the hand of the Lord was upon me, that's Ezekiel, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. And he caused me to pass among them round about, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and lo, they were very dry. I think he describes these bones as dry bones in case someone who's a skeptic would say, well, these 
people weren't really dead. They were close to death. Not only were they skeletons, they were dry bones. No hope of any life in them. Verse 3, he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. And again he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come to life. And I will put sinews on you, make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin and put breath in you that you may come alive and you will know that I'm the Lord. And so I prophesied as I was commanded and as I prophesied there was a noise and behold a rattling of the bones coming together, bone to its bone. And I looked and behold sinews were on them and flesh grew on skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. And then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy son of man and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord, God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may come to life. So I prophesied as he commanded, and the breath came unto them, and they came to life and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Now he's talking about the nation of Israel specifically, but this is a great spiritual metaphor for what happens with every Christian who is dead in their sins and they hear the gospel message and they're convicted of their sins and God grants to them faith and repentance and the Holy Spirit breathes life into them. And that which was dead comes alive. And thanks be to God, there's a great army of us in the world today. The Bible says there's going to be so many that no man can number them there in heaven. But spiritually dead people are like this army with dry bones. They cannot and have no hope of responding to the things of God. Now, I think when we're spiritually dead before we're born again, we're, we're dead in three regards. Number one, we're dead to God. We don't see his hand in anything. We are very self-centered and self-focused. We can look at God's hand of creation and not be moved by it. We can also read his word and be unmoved and un, unchanged by it. So we're dead to God. We're also dead to God's word. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, but a natural person, that's a person who's in the flesh, does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are foolish to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now you, you wouldn't question the fact if someone grew up in um, Rwanda and they've never been taught English and you're trying to read the King James Bible to them and they look you like this, what in the world are you saying? Uh, we wouldn't wonder why they couldn't understand our words. They, they don't understand English. But in a spiritual sense, we can read the Bible even though it may be in their native tongue, but if they don't have the Holy Spirit within them, we might as well be speaking a foreign language. It does not move them. They're dead to God, they're, they're dead to God's word, and they're dead to God's people. They don't have any affection. Matt talked about our affections in his prayer earlier. Puritans talked about our affections, that is what we are connected to emotionally, what we love. And we're shocked sometimes, unfortunately, by what lost people say about Christians and the church. Did you read the paper this week? We're a public school teacher not five miles or 10 miles from this very spot, was put on administrative leave because she was heard and recorded saying about conservative Christians, we should all get COVID and die. Don't be shocked by that. This is a person who does not have the spirit of God. 
They're dead to God, dead to God's word, and certainly dead to God's people. But if you've been a Christian very long at all, you've had this experience. Maybe you hear some sermon that you get a tape of or uh, some hymn you're introduced to that moves you and you go and share it with your lost friend or family member or neighbor and they look at you stone-faced. They're absolutely unmoved by it. Don't be shocked by that because these things are spiritually discerned and they don't have the Holy Spirit. Why aren't they moved? Well, verse 7 and 8 says, because they lack the ability. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it's not even able to do so. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That doesn't mean that your lost friends don't do admirable things. Many times lost people do heroic things, but it doesn't please God because they do them in the flesh. They do things other than the reason God wants us to do everything, that is for His glory. And of course, the ultimate commandment that Jesus says all the others hang on is love the Lord your God with all your heart. And if they don't love the Lord with their heart, they have no ability to please God no matter how many admirable qualities they have. But I think verse 9 is a crucial verse here. He used a transitional word. In English, it says, however. And remember, Paul is speaking to the Roman Christians. He's assuming these people are born again. And he's using a, a contrasting word. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. There are two categories of people, I'll say it again. Those who have the indwelling Spirit, the born again, and those who are not, those who are still in their sins. Now, unfortunately, there is a great misunderstanding around these verses that would say Paul's not talking about two categories of people. He's talking about more than two categories. Uh, one of, of these misunderstandings comes out of the charismatic church. And they would put humanity into three categories. They'd say there's the lost, there's the saved who yet to have the Spirit, and then there's Christians who have the Holy Spirit. And of course, they equate having the Holy Spirit with some visible manifestation, speaking in tongues or rolling around on the floor or whatever they say is a manifestation of, of the Spirit. That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying there's two categories of, of people. There's the lost and the saved, not the lost, the, slave, the saved, and, and the fleshly. We don't have to wait some second blessing later in life to know that we're born again. Remember, the purpose of this chapter is assurance for those who are truly saved. And so he puts that notion that there's three categories of people to bed once for all in verse 9. Listen to it again. He says, you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, what? He does not belong to him. So there's not a category of Christian who not, does not have the Holy Spirit. And it's not manifested because you speak in some unknown tongue or, or you behave foolishly. The evidence that you have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit is a changed life. It is indeed the fruit of the Spirit. Now he comes to verse 10 and he goes back to that theme of chapter 6 and 7, which is the mystical union, being united with Christ. And so in verse 10 he says, If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive 
because of righteousness. Now, when we become Christians, when we're born again, that doesn't take away the first death, does it? Christians die, don't they? That's uh, the way God has, has said it would be until Christ comes for his church. Now, one day, according to Revelation 21, he's going to get rid of all death, but Christians die just like lost people. But even though our body is dead or as good as dead is what it really says here, yet our spirit is alive because of righteousness. Whose righteousness? Ours? No, because of imputed righteousness was from Christ. Verse 11, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So Paul is saying, look, I'm not just speaking in metaphors. You know, that, that is the uh, methodology of liberal theologians forever. Everything in the Bible that sounds literal and miraculous, they put in the category of metaphor. Oh, that's just a metaphor. He's not really going to give us glorified bodies. Yes, indeed he is. And this is his point. Just as surely as the Spirit gives life to your spirit at the moment of conversion, one day that same Holy Spirit power that raised Jesus from the dead is going to raise you and your loved ones from the dead. And you're going to receive glorified body like Christ. And that's why he uses very specific adjectives here. He says he will also give to your mortal body. Not your spirit, your mortal body life through his spirit who dwells in you. So, not only does the spirit empower us to live lives that glorify God, he gives us the desire and the ability to obey God. But there's one last thing here, one last diagnostic question to ask is that, are you a slave of sin or are you a son or daughter of God? Look at verse 12. He says, so then, brethren, he's... This is a term of endearment. He's writing to Christians to help them to have assurance of their salvation. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Now, Paul, earlier in this book of Romans, had described our lives before our conversion as being enslaved to sin. When we talk about the doctrine of redemption, which means to buy back, sometimes we speak in terms of our being bought or purchased out of the slave market of sin by Christ. And those are very good metaphors and apt descriptions of what happens at, at conversion. But we are no longer slaves of sin. Our identity has been transferred out of the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. We are no longer under sin's authority and dominion in our lives. That is, we no longer must sin. We now that we're born again and have the indwelling spirit have the ability not to sin, if I could say it that way. We are set free to serve a new master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is reminding believers of this basic Christian truth. We don't have to sin. Verse 12 says, we have no obligation to the flesh. We're not required to any longer because sin doesn't own us as it once did. In fact, he says, here's what we should be doing instead of submitting to the flesh. We ought to be mortifying 
the deeds of the flesh. All of you, whether you've had biblical Greek class or not, know the term mortification, mortos, death, to put to death the deeds of the flesh. What are the deeds of the flesh? They're sins. They're patterns and habits of sin in our life that we declare war on at the day of our justification and we do battle with till we die. Paul uses this war mentality, this martial language. He's in a war. He's in a battle. And we don't wave the white flag just because we lose some of these battles. We get back in the fight and we seek to mortify and put to death the deeds of the flesh. Another term that Paul uses is in terms of taking off and putting on garments. We've got to be constantly taking off dirty garments of sin and putting on white robes of righteousness. And we do this continually, taking off and putting on to the day that we die or till Christ returns for his church. But we do so with the knowledge that we no longer are obligated. We don't have to serve sin and the flesh. Now, I would say in way of application, declare war on your sin and don't give up. Many of us have habits of sin that have been with us a long time and, and we just sort of say that's the way I am, right? We, we've made progress in many of these other areas. We've had victory and yet this one area of our life, we just say, you know what? That's just who I am. I'm going to limp to heaven and, and stop even trying or fighting. Don't do that. Declare war on, or redeclare war on your sin if you need to, but don't give up. Here's a fundamental question to ask yourself. Remember, this chapter is all about assurance. I want you to have assurance of salvation, but I want it to be based on the right things. Not that you walked an aisle or were baptized. Here, here's some questions asked. Do you hate your sin? What's your attitude, your disposition towards your own sin? A lost person doesn't hate their sin. They love it. Now, they may hate the consequences of their sin. They may hate that their sin leads them to jail or prison or divorce or disease. They don't hate their sin. In fact, if they could do it forever without consequence, they would. Never crosses their mind that this sin offends God. It's what it does to them. They don't hate their sin. A Christian hates their sin. They still sin, as Paul said. Sometimes we amaze ourselves with our ability to sin, don't we? Paul amazed himself in chapter 7, but he hated his sin. I always say about Paul, he wasn't perfect, but he sure wanted to be. And I think that ought to be true of every Christian. No, we're not perfect, but we ought to have a desire to be. So when people come to me, as they often do, doubting their salvation, wanting me to give them assurance of their salvation, I say, I, I can't do that. That's above my pay grade. But I will ask you some diagnostic questions, and you can jot these down in the margin of your Bible. Number one, do you love God and the things of God? That is, is your face set towards obedience to God? Do you love his church? If you're ambivalent or even hostile towards other Christians, it's a pretty good sign you're not born again. Because when you're born again, God will give you a desire to be around other people. Do you hunger for his word? As Peter says, as a babe hungers for the sincere milk. If you have to go two weeks without going to church, does it affect you? Ultimately, do you hate your 
sin? Or do you love it and coddle it? Are you led by his spirit? What does it mean to be led by the spirit of God? It means you are submitting day by day, moment by moment, decision by decision to the leadership of God's indwelling spirit. Now, when you do that as a pattern over a long period of time, we call that your Christian walk. Is your walk towards holiness and righteousness or is it not? Because if you are led by the Spirit, it means you are no longer slave of sin. But that confirms what we're going to talk about next week, that you are a son or a daughter of God. And we ran out of time, but next week we're going to look at the implications of being a son or a daughter of God. But just a little glimpse. Here's what it looks like when you're a son of God. It means he is leading you to understand and apply the Scripture. You've all had those experiences. You've read a section of Scripture a hundred times, and then when you come to the Lord humbly and you read it, the light bulb goes on. And you understand it, and you're able to make application of it in your everyday life. Secondly, if you're a son or daughter of God, He is revealing to you previously hidden sin. He loves us too much to go on in these patterns of sin without pointing out Areas of our life that are displeasing to him. Thirdly, if you're a son or daughter of God, he is guiding you to personal holiness. He is helping you to make progress in sanctification over your lifetime. And, and when we come to observe these things in our life, then it gives us that assurance that we don't have to live in fear. And this is what he contrasts being a son or a daughter of God with. He says, we don't have a spirit of fear, of slavery, that God's going to drop an anvil on our head. Instead, we understand that we are his children and he loves us and he's merciful to us and he wants what's best for us. And when we come to that understanding and we walk in that assurance of our salvation that I believe God wants all Christians to walk in, it leads to a bold and courageous and confident kind of living. I didn't say prideful. I didn't say arrogant. I didn't say self-sufficient. When we understand that we have the indwelling presence of the Spirit and we're walking in a fixed disposition towards holiness, we can live bold, courageous, and confident Christians' lives. And he calls that a spirit of adoption by which we can call our Heavenly Father, Abba, Daddy, knowing He loves us and will never let anything separate us from His love. Let's pray and thank Him for that truth. Heavenly Father, Lord, we're grateful that You give to every believer, not super-Christians, but every true Christian, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And Father, uh, if we have an unbroken pattern of walking in the flesh, if our minds are set on the flesh, our fixed disposition is towards sin. Lord, that's evidence that we're not born again. But if we have the Spirit of God within us, we have a desire, and not only a desire, we have the ability to be obedient to you. Father, we're no longer dead in trespasses and sins. We've been made alive. One day, we'll receive glorified bodies where we can worship you outside of the presence of sin forever. 
Father, we're either a slave of our sin or we've been made alive to serve you as your children. Father, I'm grateful that you don't call us strangers. You no longer call us enemies. You call us sons and daughters of the Most High. Father, help us to dwell on these truths this week. And when we come back next week, Lord, we'll look at some of the wonderful implications and applications that we are your children. So until then, Father, I pray that you would grant us that assurance. For all of us who are truly born again, grant us that confidence-building assurance that we are your children. But Father, there may be some here today who don't have grounds of assurance because they don't love you or the things of God. They don't love the people of God. They have no spiritual fruit in their life. Father, I pray you'd open their eyes to see that salvation is not walking an aisle or filling out a card or even giving intellectual assent to some historical truths found in the Bible. But being born again is having the Holy Spirit living within us, leading us to all truth. And Father, I pray that they would seek your face and that you'd grant them true faith and true repentance, which leads to true assurance of salvation. And Father, I pray for every true believer, you'd grant that assurance so that we, we may walk in confidence and boldness declaring this life's giving truth to all who in our sphere of influence. And Father, whatever good is accomplished through this, we'll call it revival, and we will call it a movement of your spirit, and we'll give you all the praise, the glory and honor due you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, Visit us online at fbckeller.org.